Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello! Our producer, AJ Faleri. Me. Hello. And last but not least, Joshua Baker. How you doing, buddy? I'm delightful. Happy to be here. As always, we have uh, just finished up our read-through of Book 8, Told the Hounds, so we have invited back to the show, friend of the show, and he has generously returned, the author of the series, Steven Erickson. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing well, thank you. So we uh, we did it. We're crawling our way through. We finished book eight, and um, let's just get things going. When people come up to you, do they talk about book eight? Well, where, where does book eight fall? Do people talk to you about it? Do people, you know, does it stand out? I don't know if they do. Um, yeah, well, the people who enjoy it, will talk to me about it. Uh, those who don't just sort of, you know, skip over it as it were. Speaking on that, with the exception of India, who we have dragged screaming and kicking this far through, I don't understand. I resent that. You've, you're have you welcome. You've said people have gotten this far and this is the book that they don't like. I don't understand how. And now that I've read it, can you remind me what it is that people bounce off of? Because I loved pretty much every moment of this one. Well, I think, Partly, it's it's the structure and the narrative voice, which of course is is primarily Krupp. Mm-hmm. And so, if readers are not fans of Krupp from from Gardens of the Moon, then that can throw them off immediately. And it also, uh, I think, in many respects, it its setup period uh, is more extended than in in many of the other books. Mm-hmm. You tend to get sort of some peak events in the other books fairly early on into book one, say book two, within a four book setup within a novel. But uh, Toll the Hounds is very much leading everything towards that final uh, sequence. So people can be impatient and want to get to that sequence, but um, I'm sort of keeping the reins tight and, and, and taking my time getting there. You know, for, for reasons that, that I certainly was able to justify my own mind, even though I knew it might you know, um, it might make some readers impatient. Mm-hmm. What what reasons were these? What do you mean? The reasons for doing this? Well, yeah, for taking, because it's definitely a slower buildup. Yeah, yeah, it's a very slow buildup. Um, because it's not just one novel. It is picking up all the story or most of the story elements from previous novels, uh, especially Gardens of the Moon um, and uh, Memories of Ice. And so it puts on its shoulders the continuation of uh, various characters that we met in those early books and brings them to this new place, uh, or rather returns them uh, to this new set of experiences and stories. And so because it's carrying those things, um, I need to remind the reader, you know, where where we left them, where they're ending up, uh, you know, where they show up here. I need to reestablish uh, the relationships that we saw were hinted at uh, in earlier books, um, and I needed to pick up various thematic threads as well. So, in that respect, it's um, it's carrying it's carrying a heavy load, and that takes time. Speaking of some of these characters we hadn't seen in quite a while, um, I was I kind of found myself struggling with some of the scenes of like the the Malazans running Kroll's Belfry kind of because i was like i don't really know where they're going and then you just kill two of them 
And it really, I mean, immediately I had like a 180 on it. Like, did you know pretty early on that there was going to have like that group needed something kind of explosive in order to sort of give them a trajectory? Uh, I would think so. I wouldn't have included them if I was just going to have them sitting in Krubel's bar. They would have, I mean, they could have been a part of the backdrop of the story that just people incidentally walk in there and have a drink and then go. <laughs> but no, uh, I needed... I mean, there were things I'd left off with Picker, for example, that were crucial in this book. Um, you know, the, the torques or the braces she has, and, and then uh, on her arms, the torques. Um, so there were there were various things that needed to be drawn back up into the story. And so, if I'm going to explore these these characters, I'm going to look into the idea of what it actually means to um, have retired from military service and uh, left twiddling your thumbs. And so basically these characters are trying to find some reason to continue living. And basically the, the external forces that then impact on them are what shake them awake again. But there are losses, mm -hmm. obviously. Do you ever hear from like real world veterans on your portrayals of veterans in the series? Yeah. yeah. Do they seem, do they think it's like pretty spot on? They seem to certainly say that. Um, I, I, I think one of the most poignant uh, letters I got was from a uh, Gulf War veteran um, who quoted back to me something I'd written in, I think, Forge of Darkness. And it was disturbing at the time and, and probably is still disturbing because um, I think this individual is suicidal. And there's a section in Forge of Darkness where a veteran talks about um, returning to to uh, civilian life and discovering that there's no place for them in that life. And obviously this really uh, connected with this one reader. At least for that letter, he seemed to have descended to the place that the narrator did in, in that particular novel, which was not a good place to end up. It's a sober reminder that the written word uh, has efficacy. It has impact and power and that the audience, the reader, is not um, a, a simple number or um, is not homogenous in any fashion whatsoever. So that was, yeah, that is, it, it, it reminded me of um, just the impact that um, can occur when you're deep inside a character's point of view in their, in their uh, persona and you follow their lines of thinking um, and their feelings, regardless of whether you agree with them or not, you simply follow them. And they can take characters into places of, of uh, emotional trauma, if you will. And then for me, I feel an obligation to somehow drag them back and pull them out. So when somebody sort of takes a quote uh, from a novel um, and isolates it, then we don't get to see and uh, we just don't get to see the, the progression back out of that dark place. And that can happen. And there's really nothing as, as an author you can do about it. Um, you can only hope that the, the reader continues through with the story to reach those points where um, a character's individual humanity uh, is resurrected. It's, it comes back to, to life, basically. So it's um, it sounds difficult. Oh, it's very yeah. difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah. 
Um, you, you, you say, you, you know, you try and bring these characters back to humanity, but I'm curious what, um, and, and, you know, you say that, that, or you said in the past that, that you kind of just let the characters do what they're going to do. Um, and you're just writing it, uh, with a character like, um, Chalice who does in the end wind up taking her Mm -hmm. own life. Um, what is that kind of, I don't want to say like method, but like what, what is, what is like going through, in terms of like like story stuff in that point, because because it feels like in that and we talked about it a bit in the episode that it just came out today, um, uh, of of like Oops. her story seems to kind of mirror the larger uh, like feelings of uh, people in Darugistan or you know certain people in Darugistan and not not Chalice specifically. Uh, so I'm I'm just curious about like how you uh, with with a character like Chalice who ends up kind of succumbing to this hopelessness like where does that um i don't know i guess how do you approach that well chalice's storyline is uh an inexorable continuation uh what began in gardens of the moon mm-hmm. so it, it's closely tied in with crocus um and crocus's uh journey um through i guess this emotional maturity and and the loves that that he experienced in between so it's it's tied closely into crocus and then and then it's also tied into i mean everything's kind of connected revolving around this particular yeah. thing so there's chalice there's absalar um there's marilio i mean it, it's it's all bound together yeah so the best way to think about it for me anyways is to work backwards and we take the last scene with chalice and she is it's set up early that she's got this this crystal globe this this ornament um that she's holding in her hand when she leaps off so Mm -hmm. i mean there's there's a very if you remember back to gardens of the moon chalice i mean the name itself is pretty um Mm. on the nose um (laughs) In that respect, it, it's an unattainable thing, and it becomes an unattainable thing for Crocus uh, in Gardens of the Moon. But Crocus, at, at that point, is, is is too young to actually do anything but objectify uh, the the, right. the mm-hmm. object of his love, the subject of his love. So she then becomes this this uh, unreachable thing for for Crocus. Um, but she makes her own choices uh, in Gardens of the Moon mm-hmm. and ends up with the uh, eponymous hero uh, who then marries her. And so that's that's her life choice. And when we return in Toll the Hounds, we see that that particular choice um, was the wrong choice to make for her. And so she's led to a place of um, feeling completely trapped within a relationship. And completely, if you think about specifics of her relationship with her husband, she has been completely objectified to the point where, you know, he's, he's, he's thinking of, of, of actually pimping her out. So she has reached that place. And then you think in terms of Crocus and his in, in, initial infatuation, which then fades and he falls in love with uh, Absalar. She then becomes unattainable. For Crocus, uh, in the same fashion that that Chalice did, uh, for all the changes Crocus made to be like her, those changes were the very last thing she desired. And so then he bounces around. He ends up with Scalera briefly. Um, it's partly 
I guess, emotionally healed by her. Um, but in returning home, he finds himself falling back into the ruts of, of who he was when he left. And so that returns him to Chalice. Mm. And it becomes a very toxic uh, relationship. But you see, Crocus is running through his own his own progression. And so Crocus with Marilio, or rather Crocus with Chalice, is a mimicry of Marilio's life experiences. This is what Marilio did, basically. Mm. Right? He committed adultery, he 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 did all these things, and, and this was this was his purpose. And so in parallel, you've got Marilio coming to the end of all of that. He's gotten too old for all that kind of stuff. And that leads him off in a different direction. But Crocus, in a sense, takes on Marilio's role. He replaces him. And then the next progression is Crocus becoming Cutter when he needs to. And so that progression takes Crocus to the role of Ralik Nam. And so there's a parallel between, if you think back of Gardens of the Moon, when Ralik Nam, all for the purposes of returning Cole to uh, his rightful place, effectively assassinates Turbinor. It's not a duel in any fashion. And then you think of the the scene where Cutter comes up to, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gorlis or whatever. Gorlis, yeah. Gorlis, yeah. And does precisely the same thing. It's not a duel. It's, it's mm -hmm. a, a flat-out assassination. So at that point, my hope is that there's some little echo in the reader's mind that there was a scene in Gardens of the Moon where Ralik Nam faces off with, with Crocus and says, this is not the path you should be taking. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, uh, I foreshadow in, in Toll the Hounds when Ralik Nam meets Crocus, I think just outside the, the uh, Phoenix yeah. Inn, and is almost assassinated mm -hmm. flat out. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the foreshadowing of where Crocus is heading. And so, uh, so thematically, everything is sort of running in parallel. Uh, there's a kind of an echoing of everything from Gardens of the Moon but also elements of Memories of Ice um, as well. Mm -hmm. So then we look at Chalice, and she's got this globe. And the globe is, is symbolic of um, the actual love, or rather it's symbolic of Crocus's second relationship, his true love, which is with Absalara. And the tie-in there is, is the whole story about the Gardens of the Moon. The, the, like mm -hmm. not the title, um, but the story sure. of Gardens yeah, yeah. of the Moon. Yeah, yeah. And so... All of these things have to sort of, uh, in order for Crocus to eventually, uh, oh, that's spoilers. In order for Crocus, in order for Crocus <laughs> oh. to go where he's going to end up, okay. um, that imagined perfect world that he is now encapsulated, like he thought of with Absalar, is now encapsulated within the globe. And so, when Chalice jumps, obviously be so on the nose that chalice shatters, but the globe does. Mm -hmm. But it's that breakage that is actually what liberates Crocus to do what he then later later does in, in the series. Yeah. So everything is, and this is why so many things have to be set up, because I'm calling back to very specific events uh, in the previous books, and they're all linked. Um, they're all linked mm -hmm. because what the, um, well, Absalar is, is named after the, uh, Absalara, I guess it is the uh, mm -hmm. the thief of the moon, um, and so and she is trapped, and so uh, she's trapped in Dragnapur, and so the shattering of the globe is is also connected to uh, Absalara's uh, ultimate escape from from the sword itself. Mm. 
So all of these things are all just sort of bound together. And it's one of the reasons why there's, there's so much setup involved, um, because I needed to uh, thematically make everything mesh uh, as best I could. Right. Now, it's a long you, I explanation. Mean, like, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I um, I mean, I mean, you know, obviously we know that Crocus has all these relationships with all these people and, and the Marilia relationship especially, but like just you mentioning them in the same sentence just like made me realize how how mirrored those stories are uh, yeah. from the first book. Yeah, there's there's mirroring everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, even in the, um, you know, uh, Chalice has her whole, uh, right, you know, right before she she jumps, she has this whole thing where she, you know, she throws in Dust of Dreams, the title of the next book. Mm. And then in Gardens of the Moon, when Absalar has her whole thing and she talks, she, she says Gardens of the Moon. Uh, so yeah. It's kind of a mirror there as well. Yeah. Uh, just good stuff. Good stuff. So when we, you were saying earlier how we are coming back to the characters that we've been, um, that we had seen earlier and some, I guess, readers were not as intrigued to learn all over again. Um, however I was because I never learned the first time. So I really actually, um, enjoyed Toll the Hounds. I complained the whole way through. You will not get that by listening to the podcast. Really, you won't. But I actually, <laughs> when I reflect, it's always after mm-hmm. when I can reflect back and be like, okay, yeah, I liked that. Um, and AP mentioned something that I hadn't really thought of. I don't know why, but um, how we're reading the book mm-hmm. and dissecting it chapter by chapter mm-hmm. And so when we're reading, we're trying to figure out like what's happening rather than just digesting what we're reading. Yeah. Yeah. You, en- you end up doing way more work than you have to. Right. But don't you feel with your writing that you kind of like, it, isn't it, there's something like you are questioning it the whole time. Well, at least I am. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because of you or if that's because of how we read the book. Now, it depends what you're when you're saying questioning it. What is it questioning where these characters are going? How many different like because there's so many different like, predicting endings, mm-hmm. but there's so many different endings that it's like you're never just predicting one. You're predicting multiple people's journeys throughout this entire mm-hmm. yeah. world. Yeah. Well, is that... well, well, can you predict Nothing. the eventual fates of everybody, you know? I'd be interested if you could, Inge. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, so well, wait, skill. maybe. I don't know. In other words, in other <laughs> words, in the real world, I mean, that is how it is. You know, we can we can find ourselves in uh, encounters, situations, conversations, meetings, whatever, and then we spend a lot of our time then rehashing those things in our mind just to make sense of was well, that what really happened, or is that did I read it right? You know, were all of these things, you know, where did that, where did that statement come from? What's it leading to, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is, this is our, our daily engagement. And so if you're reading a story, if you set that aside and simply have an expectation of, I want to have the comfort of knowing where all of this is going and knowing <laughs> where each character is going, there's nothing wrong with that. That makes sense in a sense. So it's one of the, it's one of the gifts of literature is is that it's an encapsulated um, micro expression of, of of humanity, and so it, it's got its limits. And as a writer, 
I'm aware of that, but I also fight against it all the time. I want to send those echoes and, and ripples um, out beyond the story uh, and into the minds of, of, of the readers. And so those questions are, they're questions I, I guess I, I would hope that readers are asking because it's sort of, it underscores the fact that we cannot predict what's coming. We just can't. Yeah. You also resurrected um, my like enjoyment for reading. I hadn't read a book. <laughs> this was the first book that I read in years. I don't remember the last time I read a book before I started this series. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'm obviously I'm reading different things, um, not fantasy, but I will say in reading, like right now I'm reading a mystery and I'm like, guys, where's the, like, like, I just feel like it doesn't hit the same now because, <laughs> <laughs> because now I'm used to really like needing to think and dissect and question. And in the book, the literature that I'm used to reading, like I'm, it's very much, I feel like I read the same book over and over. It's just like <laughs> different characters like that. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It's just really interesting to compare that now to like a whole other world of writing and reading. And I just don't like you make it seem like super, I feel like casual, but it's like, I feel like it must be very difficult to write like that. Like, like it's not the same every time. It's always different. And that's fascinating. Can I, I want to jump in. Sure. I just started with India. I just started a book and I wasn't sure I was going to like it because all the reviews were like, there's no characterization in the world's too complicated. And I've been reading it like it's a children's book. And I'm like, <laughs> what have you done? What have you done to me, Steve? <laughs> like, I feel the same way. <laughs> hmm. Pounding through books these days. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm reading it. I'm like, how do they not see the characters? It's on the page. It made me so mad. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, there's no place you can you can you can fix a point in in, in time, right? So where where everything is on uh, is constantly on the move, and and so our sensibilities are as well. They're evolving uh, day by day, and tied into that is is our expectations of, of what it is to be. Uh, entertained by the products that are being produced all around us. Um, and that changes. Mm -hmm. That's not fixed. I think a lot of what the uh, resistance is to things like uh, various adaptations on television based on books or whatever is actually founded on that, that sensibility that that which was in place when I first read that particular book is somehow fixed and somehow immutable and uh, immune to alteration, to updating, to, to anything. Um, and so they're, they're holding to a particular uh, fidelity or sanctity that no book was ever designed to, to produce. It, it's a completely artificial notion because if you read a book, whatever book you read um, 10, 15 years ago, regardless of whether you liked it or not, if you go back and read it again, it will be a different experience uh, for good or for ill, but it will be different. So you can't hold these things. And the expectation of some production company somewhere having the percipients to actually know the things that you value out of the work you, you just, you know, you read 10 years ago, it's simply impossible. And so if the audience is predisposed to being disappointed, guess what? They will be disappointed, right? So to me, it's more 
staying open to the fact that these things are constantly evolving that that everything about entertainment is a moving target but the audience is also a moving and evolving target unless it plants its feet and chooses a hill to die on in which case it becomes obsolete that position very very quickly so you know people do you remember the manchurian candidate have you ever seen that film great movie both editions fantastic film yeah (laughs) Well, if you were to read the reviews at the time, you would discover a real uh, pushback on that particular film because it exposed the the fallacy of um, human consciousness being uh, entirely uh, self-contained and uh, immune to external influence to that extent. There was a lot of pushback again, and there was also the the Cold War paranoia that fed into that pushback. So you have all these other aspects that, that are reacting to the work that's been created, but you, you watch it now, and those those notions really don't fall in. Uh, they, they don't enter our minds at all. We now watch it just for what it is, because times have changed and history has moved on. Uh, it, ironically, that particular theme of mind manipulation um, is being revisited many, many times since, mostly in science fiction contexts. Is there a specific TV adaptation you were kind of referencing there, or is this just an example? No, I, I think it's more across the board. The uh, the negativity that seems to now accompany almost uh, anything like um, Wheel of Time, Sandman, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this flood of negativity, which is, and I don't mean this politically, I mean it ideologically. Um, is so steeped in, in a conservative reactionism that it almost loses loses touch with the fact that all of these things are evolving, and, and not only that, you as the audience is evolving, and mm. you know, on an individual basis. So to sort of be stubborn about various things and aspects of, of fidelity to a text uh, is really missing the point, because if you want to adhere to the fidelity to a text, you read the text and it stops there, period, right? If you, if you want something that's exactly like the book, read the book because the book is exactly like the book. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So you're saying you, so you're saying the Hobbit adaptations, the better of the three Lord of the Rings trilogies. Um, compared to the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, a hundred percent. And obviously there are people in those spaces who want to use that energy in an explicitly political spence. So especially mm-hmm. we're in the run up to that Lord of the Rings show coming out and it has just become a weird hive of a lot of energy that is, I would say, not terribly <laughs> seem related to the material, you know, mm-hmm. but a- anyway, I actually haven't, I actually wanted, it's funny you mentioned the Sandman thing. I wanted to ask you about it. Are you a Sandman head? I've never, I've never read it, but it's like, People love it, and I, I've been thinking about checking it. it out. No, I've not read it. Um, I've seen the first episode. Sure, but I'm, I'm taking my time. I'm in you know, no, no huge rush. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. All right, to, to to bring things back to the Malazan Book of the Fallen. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you and AJ kind of were touching on kind of balancing some sort of message of um, finding humanity, and then kind of going to these kind of hopeless places. And I do think this book is trying to find a balance between kind of sitting in grief 
and then trying to f- see what it is like to move through grief or move through something or process something. And I wonder how much that was on your mind and how much that was also in your mind when it came to these settings of Darugistan versus Black Coral when you were approaching this book of trying to balance kind of these pretty hopeless or melancholic or grief-filled sections with the these other aspects of trying to find that humanity and move through it? Um, well, I mean, there, there are so many levels to, to reading this or to interpreting this, but you've got, you've got the text on the page, then you've got the narrator. And so that's, that's the first filter that is dictating what is on the page is the narrator. And then you've got the author and the author and the narrator are not synonymous. And then from the author, you've got the person. So from Steven Erickson, which is a construct, you've got mm-hmm. Steve Lennon, which is the person. And so making the, any of those, conflating any of those things is a huge, huge presumption on the part of the reader. So in other words, to, to look at a scene in Toll the Hounds and try to, con- try to infer something about my belief systems um, or, or my interests or whatever moves you on to very, very shaky ground. Um, it, it simply, yeah, I agree. it's not a thing to actually be done. And especially if you're going to hold to the dead author idea, because you don't want to talk about the author at all at that point. Um, the author is not relevant. Conversely, as soon as you have produced your podcast and released it from day one, you ended up in the same boat as every artist and every author out there who's published because you are in the public sphere. So if you were to hold to the dead author, you'd have to hold to that for yourselves as well, which means you cannot comment on anything fans might say about your podcast, period. Sure. But do you? Yeah, I mean, we have a community, we have a community discord that for this exact reason. To yeah, exactly. Exact yeah, yeah, yeah. So the authors, totally, yeah. so the authors are not dead. Right. Right. Very much alive. So you can't have it both ways, right? Um, and, and there is no safe space. That's the whole point of being in the public domain. There's no such thing as a safe space. You, you have all basically placed, placed yourselves in, in, in a field and at any one moment, a firing squad might appear coming from any side and all their guns are pointed at you. And that's just, that's the nature of the beast now, right? And then if that, if, if that firing squad then has the audacity to blindfold you, gag you and tie you up so that you cannot respond in any fashion whatsoever, that's, you know, even more of a, an affront to the humanity of, of that individual. It's basically um, dehumanizing them uh, under the guise of, you know, complaints about a particular work or a particular book they may have created. So at that point, it, it's, I, I'm hoping I'm getting this across, but you guys have placed yourselves and everyone in, on BookTube, everyone who does this kind of public uh, forum presentation, you have all placed yourselves in very vulnerable positions. The point I'm making, though, is once you recognize that, you then, to me, it seems uh, explicit that you have to recognize that in the other people the people you are talking about, the writers mm-hmm. you're talking about, the books you're talking about, that that vulnerability is, is it's a mutual thing. And so the distance between the person and the book being produced has multiple layers, multiple filters. And a lot of those filters are in place for very, very specific reasons. So Gar- Toll the Hounds, for example, the filter I used, which was the most protective filter I could think of, was the voice of Krupp. Because Krupp is probably the most humanist character in the entire Malazan setting. And through Krupp 
and Krupp's ability to find goodness, if you will, and, and delight and forgiveness and his integrity towards these things and his deliberation towards these things was my protective mechanism personally because of what I was going through personally at the time. I needed that one major voice of separation between me and my personal life and what I was writing in the, in the book. And to me, and this is why I, I, I didn't want to get there, but I'm going to get there. So here we go. Um, so your discussion on the scene of Torvald Nam, it felt as if you guys are almost looking for a gotcha moment, not specific to the book, but specific to the person, not even the author, but the mm. person. And I guess what I ended up feeling, first of all, it was a, a, a atrocious misreading of the scene because that scene is, it's uh, transactional, it is uh, mutual, consensual role-playing, um, the comedic elements to it relate to the fact that Torvald was really bad at role-playing in that sex scene. So it was the wrong scene to sort of put your, your, your pins down on. And the thing that affected me the most, and I, I mean, I was actually ready to, to contact you almost immediately, and I wish I had in some respects. It is based on the assumption that there is something in there that exposes some falsehood on my part that by writing a, a book that was very, very overtly feminist in its approach, um, I was somehow pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And that, that there was some, oh, I don't know, unreconstructed uh, boomer chauvinist hiding behind all of this stuff. And of course, <laughs> once you reach that level, it, it becomes personal because that you guys don't know my life, right? You don't know what I, where I grew up. You don't know the things I experienced. And if I were to tell you that I remember very well the 60s and the 70s were my teen years and feminism was front and center. Feminism was on the streets. It was a very, very powerful vocal force demanding equality. That's what I grew up in. And uh, from about 16 onwards, every girlfriend I had was a capital F feminist. The woman I married is not just a capital F feminist. She's a in-your-face, you know, fuck you feminist. And not shy on her opinions. So the assumption then is, well, somehow I've fooled her for the last 40, you know, 35 years. It's just, it impugns not only me, but it impugns her as well. And so, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty incensed with that. Um, this book is, this series is not, it's not presenting something that is not conviction. The feminism in this series is conviction. It's what I grew up with. Um, it's built into me. It's built into all my relationships. And yes, so if, I, if I'm feeling that I've been misread or that someone is looking at a book and trying to work out the psychology of me, uh, yeah, I get rightly pissed off. And I think, I think I have the validity to do so and to say so. So, you know, if, if you're going to be looking for these scenes, um, that's somehow going to expose some sort of secret chauvinism on my part. Good luck, because you're going to have to badly read the scenes in order to do it. So it's said. Yeah, no, I I totally understand how you feel, Steve. I think you have every right to be upset. Um, and I think something that can be difficult on the show is, especially since you have started to come on the show, and then we'll joke about Steve in this way of like, haha, our author friend who comes on the show. I think sometimes when we talk about the book, it can sound like we're talking about you or like my friend who wrote a thing. 
because we're kind of adopting these personas on the show, so to speak. But um, we were actually talking about some of this same material with AP, and I definitely think that obviously the book is different than you, and it would be kind of wrong to say the books is like this, Stephen, the person is like this one to one. I mean, it's just there's so many parts that break down this thing. Um, so sometimes I do think the blase nature of how we talk about the book on the show or the way we talk about you in relationship to the book on the show, I think um, leaves room for that type of harm. So I totally understand um how it can come across as like we're making some sort of personal statement ac- uh, against you. And I, I don't mean it that way. And I apologize if it sounds like we're trying to impeach your character. Yeah. I, I definitely try my best to respond to the text, but I know that the nature of the show does not always come across that way. So I apologize mm. for this. Mm. I do too. I definitely don't think you're a boomer chauvinist <laughs> at all. And I don't think any of us do. No. Um, we just get a little weird about the the sex scenes. I know rape scenes. We we get a little. We're, we 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 don't. We're not. We're we're just not. We can't. Well, and we we I, we don't like it. You don't like sex scenes. I I I, I wouldn't not say that. Not these ones. Sometimes I just and again maybe it's I I don't know because I don't also want to be like maybe it's me like blah 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 no, but I do feel like sometimes they're a little they're a little much. They're a little like involved. Yeah. And, yeah. But I mean, the question then is. But everything. Uh, and I get. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, just are there going to be areas of the human condition that are, are forbidden to be written about? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a product of my, of my age or my upbringing. But I don't put the weight on sex scenes that it seems others do. And, yeah. And when I'm writing them, quite often I'm going almost comedic more than anything else because there i don't think this is a huge confession but there are huge elements of of absurdity in the in sex uh from experience uh, i can say this um and so there's if you can't laugh i mean you're doomed right um and so that time that often sort of slips its way through but having said that if i'm going to be exploring something like sexual assault i i mean you guys have read eight books now you know that i get there is no ambiguity in what I'm writing. And there is no, if anything, there is emotional detachment to what I'm writing. Um, because that particular, those particular scenes are not where I'm going to focus. The consequences of those scenes are where I'm going to focus. And so that brings us to, for example, the story of uh, Stoddy, mm. um, where in Memories of Ice, she is uh, assaulted during the, the capital. Kapistan siege and produces a child of rape from rape. And so her storyline, picking up on that storyline is what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to explore was the complexity and the turmoil and the contradictions um, that a character in that situation would be experiencing. And I also think it's a mistake to look at Stani from Gruntel's point of view, which is kind of potentially suggested, I suppose. I mean, Gruntel in Memories of Ice latches on to what happened to Stani as uh, one of his motivations for, for his further actions. Gruntel's a, Gruntel as a character, I mean, he is a mess. He is not a balanced character uh, in the least. And his trauma 
from the siege of Kapustan in, in Memories of Ice relates to his failure, his personal failure. And if you think of him as a character, what is he representing? Well, he's representing masculinity, uh, particularly the physical potential prowess of masculinity and the self-appointed role of masculinity in protecting uh, innocence. And Gretel failed. And that is his struggle. And that is his crisis. But Stani's is a very different one. And that's the one I really wanted to explore. Um, and so we do sometimes get Gruntel's point of view speaking with Stani, but Gruntel is not a reliable character in that sense of you're going to elect to see Stani from in agreement with Gruntel's point of view. You're not meant to see it in agreement with Gruntel's point of view. Uh, Stani is her own agency, and this is what she's having to deal with. So again, it, it, it's it's a callback. It's 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 a continuation of a storyline and an emotional development and for that particular character. So, you know, what happens to Stani uh, explicitly on the page in Memories of Ice is nowhere near as relevant or important as what is happening to her uh, as a consequence of that action. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I always want to pursue in, in, in my writing is, is what are the consequences of these heinous acts that are happening in our world right now. And how do we extend an understanding of the struggles uh, that these people are going through, that victims will go through um, once these things have occurred? And, you know, that's Stani's story um, in a nutshell. Only because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. So, um, so like, you know, you've had like vets reach out. Have you ever had like survivors of mm -hmm. like sexual assaults reach out to you and write to you? Yeah. Yeah. I had one, um, yeah, breathtaking letter, but it wasn't related to, uh, Tola Hounds. It was related to, um, Reaper's Gale, I think maybe Midnight Tides. Um, it's a scene where Saren Padak walks into the sea and it appears that she's going to continue walking into the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had someone who had actually attempted that and experienced that. And she wrote to tell me that, well, to thank me for basically, I guess, echoing her, uh, internal disconnect that led her mm -hmm. to that moment. But I don't have any expectations of receiving things like that. That's just like a heavy burden. Well, like for, like if well, no, it's not that. It's that that is that is re-exposing. You know, that's a that's a victim re-exposing the vulnerability. Um, it's humbling. Let's put it that way, um, but also a bit um, disconcerting. And again, reminding of how close a connection can occur between an author and somebody they they have never met, uh, just through virtue of a story being told. I think what I was trying to get at earlier is um, obviously you're responding to criticism around feminism or you're a sexist, you're a boomer chauvinist, whatever it is. Um, we, I, I actually talked about you know this this specifically with AP, and obviously we 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 voiced some critiques around these issues on the show, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something we've received a lot of mail on. We've had a lot of talks about and. Uh, you characterize the series as feminist, and I, I would agree with that characterization. And I think you would struggle to read the books or portray the books as having its sympathies elsewhere 
or kind of endorsing some sort of patriarchal worldview or kind of not having interest in the difficulties of women sometimes. I think rightfully lots of people write in about specific readings of the show when we talk about that Torvald scene or we talk about this. I watched your YouTube video with AP and that was very interesting about that scene. And I think that stuff's totally fair and I hear it with open ears. I'm very interested in it. And I think I just, I guess I disagreed with India when I feel like uh, it's not that I'm opposed to this, th- these types of scenes or something. Um, what I, what I said one time is that I, I sometimes I feel frustrated because I want, it's clear I want more of this or more interest or more out of this type of stuff in the book, which isn't always a fair thing to criticize. And I often think about those criticisms for me. I hope they come from a place of intra-feminist criticisms, if that makes any sense. I, I don't I don't think, uh, and I'm certainly not trying to have a gotcha thing. I, I, I don't, I, I know it can, That's that type of stuff's very popular and it, it can come across that way. So I certainly... So I don't know. The spirit of it comes from, I think, a place of we are in, I think, the same area of trying to highlight these issues and talk about this because I think we are all on the same page as of it, it being important. And then you can have different opinions about that, which I don't think we're going to solve the differences of feminism on this show. And then the readings thing is a more thing that has, I think, more concrete answers a lot of the times than kind of the subjective ideas about what's the best way to achieve political means. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's kind of the founding premise of, of the Malazan universe, though, is to take one step past the struggle and make the assumption of the struggle having been won or the struggle never having been necessary in the first place. And so it does It does move that, you know, it moves past that. Um, you know, to write a novel that is actually exploring feminism as a uh, social and political struggle, then why wouldn't you write a a story set in a patriarchal setting? Because that would highlight the struggle that's being uh, waged. But if you're writing in a setting where there is no patriarchy, then that struggle never never occurred. It's not historically relevant. And that, of course, addresses that whole notion of... um, almost a sense of biological imperative that that seems to be built a built-in assumption regarding patriarchy which i in my in all my writing i i constantly challenge um i don't buy it and and the, and there's always going to be pushback just by saying i don't buy it you know it's it, it's yeah it's not there yeah well there's going to be pushback of course yeah <laughs> yeah it's a social construct always has been when i say always um i'm not going to pre-civilized, um, whatever you want to, you know, if you want to view civilization as, as beginning with agriculture and, and surplus, fine. But there is, yeah, there's no hard and fast biological rule that in any way justifies uh, patriarchy, period. Yeah, no, I think we're in agreement about that. Um, I, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to bring up with this issue? I appreciate you bringing it up. I feel like a lot of the times it can be kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak, because obviously it's taboo to speak about this subject a lot of the times in our culture. Yeah, North American culture. Yeah. <laughs> European is a little bit more relaxed, interestingly oh. enough. We're very we're very puritanical here. Oh no, yeah, America. Canada too. <laughs> Canada too. Yeah. 
Um, Absolutely. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, and it is autumn. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And of course, extra special thank you to Steve for coming on the show once again. Uh, I'll get through the rest of the credits quickly, but I just wanted to let you all know that our podcast is now officially on YouTube. Mostly it's just static videos of the show you're listening to right now, but we've gotten feedback in the past that some people prefer to listen on YouTube instead of your traditional podcatcher. So we've done that. Uh, Also on our YouTube, we have been doing bi-weekly videos talking about the new Lord of the Rings series, Rings of Power. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, head on over to youtube.com slash 10 very big books. And of course, that link will be in the show notes. If you'd like to give us your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes, you can always email us 10 very big books at gmail.com tweet us at 10 very big books, or you can head on over to our discord bit.ly slash VBB discord. That's capital V capital B capital B capital D discord. That link will also be in the show notes. Thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon. If you'd like to financially support the show, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10 very big books. That link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Gezrick for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter. Twitter at a underscore w underscore dan g of course the wonderful music in today's episode including the remix intro and outro tracks is by the one the only amaranthan from his album simulant rain links to both of their pages will be in the show notes uh and 10 very big books will be back in one week on october 7th with the premiere of dust of dreams we will be talking about the prologue and chapters one two and three uh, it's a hefty chunk so get to reading but for now let's get back to our conversation with steven erickson And thank you so much for listening. Well, okay. Well, well, let me get a, uh, do a survey here. Did you enjoy the novel? Oh, it's, it's my favorite one of the, it's my favorite one of the books. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. India. Yes. Yes. I did. I, okay. (laughs) We can give you our, we can give you our listing, I guess at the end. This one definitely is not my favorite. I think Midnight Tides is still my favorite. Hmm. No, wasn't it Midnight Tides? No, Memories of Ice. That was my favorite. Um, Marie's Weiss, my favorite. But yeah, this one was, I, I didn't hate it. And I don't get why anybody could hate it. I don't think it's like hateable. I just, <laughs> um, they're big and they're confusing. And these, but this one wasn't too bad because at least we know a lot of what's going on. And that's what I like more, which is also why it's kind of changing. I feel like the structure of our podcast, because it used to be a lot more like questions. And now mm-hmm. it's more of us just like reading it and talking about it, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I liked it. I'm assuming you guys have had uh, a whole episode devoted to Scamper, the two-legged dog. We did not talk you about it. You did not. Oh, no. I, I'm deeply disappointed. We, that, that name was never even mentioned, to be honest. The, be honest I think the ox didn't get enough credit either. We should have more oh, of yes. animal Love highlight. the ox so much. The ox point of view, absolutely. There are a lot of animals. You could do a kind of YA Malazan animal thing if you want, you know? Well, I mean, <laughs> the opening of the novel I'm writing right now, which is uh, No Life Forsaken, the second Carsa trilogy, the Witness trilogy, opens a whole scene with uh, the point of view of a drunk, or rather, an alcoholic mule. So nice. there you go. <laughs> nice. That's a good. Now this I can re- I can relate. Get a to this get a little TVBB exclusive here. Um, yeah. yeah. I, it's actually something I want to ask you about with that because in Toll the Hounds, obviously we're kind of touching back in with these characters from. Some in Memories of Ice, but a lot mm-hmm. of them we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, I was curious about what ideas or lessons you learned from writing this book that you brought to writing the witness thing, where you're also following up with characters that maybe the reader hasn't seen in a while or that it hasn't maybe wasn't on their mind. So 
I wonder if any of that bled through or if there were, was lessons you carried through. Um, I think I actually probably decided to minimize the characters that we were going to see returning for this trilogy. One of the reasons being, you obviously haven't got to the end of the series, in the 10 book series, but a lot of them deserve their time off stage. Mm-hmm. And that being the rest of their time, um, they've earned, they've earned their break. And besides, I, in terms of thinking about the legacy, not just of Carso, but of everything that happened in, in the 10 book series, which is what I'm writing about in this new trilogy, a lot of that legacy is, is almost cultural uh, on scale. So it's not, it's not individuals returning, it's the things that those individuals did, which may or may not be known by the characters in, in the present book, but have had a, a lasting effect, a lasting impact uh, on shaping the present that is there in, in that, that I'm exploring in um, the Witness trilogy. So it's, it's more, I guess my response is that I, I took a more broader approach. I did not want to have characters from the 10 book series, you know, popping up or waving, you know, at the audience. Um, just for the sake of of them doing it yeah i mean there's mm -hmm. a different context too with it being Mm -hmm. kind of a separate series following up than kind of being within the same series so makes sense and uh i mean i'm returning i mean geographically i'm returning to places and so there's a lot uh, there's a lot to work with there um having done so uh i mean i guess as, as long as we're talking about characters being reintroduced uh I did not expect Icarium to be in this book because he did die. Or sorry, uh, Icovian. My bad. All right. I did not expect Icovian to be in this book because uh, he was dead. Um, and so to have him come back as this, you know, ascendant or pseudo god or whatever um, was was I think a really uh, a really interesting choice. And I think where where his message ends up of being, you know redemption comes from within or whatever and and then it's up to you to kind of work to be better uh outwardly after that point uh i think is really interesting um how much of like thinking back to writing idkovian in memories of ice did you know he was going to come back as this sort of uh you know angel of of uh redemption in this book well possibly not i think I, I brought Kobian back into the story because I was seeing a lot of people were, this is years ago, but they were doing it. They were posting the quotes from Kobian regarding mm-hmm. um, compassion given freely. And that's sure. the thing that, that was sort of central to Kobian's uh, premise uh, for Memories of Ice. But the quote is highly problematic. Mm. And it seemed that the quote was being sort of, it wasn't the right place to end up, if that makes any sense. So I needed to return to it and say, well, this is the consequence of this particular belief system on Kobian's part. Mm. It's not pretty that at some point, um, one has to be selective in, in their fullest expression of their compassion. They can be limited in compassion to all things, mm. but they have to be selective in their fullest expression of compassion. Otherwise, they reach an extent of vulnerability that is unsustainable mm. and corruptible. So I needed to return to him um, and uh, elaborate and, and explore the consequences of that particular quote. Yeah, kind of a- yeah. ask the next question, so to speak. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that's, that's so interesting, um, to, to kind of have to elaborate farther on a character. And you said that, you know, and I think in our first conversation and, you know, it's everywhere online of you saying that this is a cipher for the series, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that. And there's obviously a whole lot of looking back at where the series has been. And I assume where the series is going to end up, um, into, you know, along similar lines of this, like, you know, uh, uh, said this thing, but you know, maybe that's not necessarily all there is to it. D- did you feel like you were kind of, uh, I don't know, back in your like Iowa's writer workshop days of like doing peer analysis, but on your own works. Oh, um, no, I, I, I'm far more ruthless on my own works than I ever was at, at Iowa. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, not entirely. It's that there are no simple answers to the themes I was, I was exploring. And so sure. if I had a sense that, that like the Covian examples, sort of a sense that, okay, you took the quote out, you know, as readers, you're perfectly, Mm-hmm. allowed to do that but it really doesn't stop there uh, that conversation needs to to be continued and in in many respects the reason why it's a 10 book series is that all of those conversations needed to be continued sure um, yeah. and so that's one of the reasons why um i would you know create echoes of, of previous things um just to do a callback um and the advantage of that is that it sews up the, the story uh, in a much tighter weave than if I were as, um, venturing off on the brand new territory uh, with each novel. You know, potentially it could have gone almost infinitely in terms of directions. But because I was exploring very specific themes, um, I was not going to expand beyond those. And so I'll revisit and revisit and revisit. And my entire writing career maybe you know at the end of the day um described in that fashion i will revisit things over and over again because i don't have the answers and so i'm just there to i'm exploring i i'm i'm trying to see the 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 facets and ramifications and um recognizing that who i am now is not who i was and, and and these that itself establishes a kind of temporal dialogue um where I'm speaking, I guess, not even on, in conversation, um, more like call and response, but I have no control mm. over the call because it's already done. It's mm. already written, um, but I can respond. I mean, I'm not an author or in the space at all, really, but I have to imagine not a lot of authors get the chance to kind of be in dialogue with themselves in this way, uh, let alone within the same series. So that's and, and be... with Cam, and with Cam. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's got to be, I don't know, I have to imagine that's that's kind of neat to be able to do that no i think i think i think it's a general uh condition of authors that they are in dialogue mm-hmm. with their past their past works even if some of those works never saw the light of day and were never published mm. they're still there they exist and they're still sort of highlighting the personal obsessions of that particular author mm-hmm. and they will revisit that you know potentially for the rest of their lives in some form mm-hmm. or another i think that's pretty much true across the board yeah but i'm sure it must be trivia i mean you write these books 20 years ago you game this stuff 30 40 years ago or whatever so i mean it's like a long tail for you on this so yeah favorite scenes least favorite scenes oh goodness i the- i want to reread i'm gonna go i'm gonna go first aj yes. i want to reread all of the shit in dragnapur because it's 
so weird and wild and I feel like important, but also I have no idea what happened. So oh, right. Okay. Well, I do think it, it is very it's not very tactile. I don't know. I that maybe yeah. that's a way to describe it. A lot of, I, a yeah, lot of really, physics involved. That's in that's what I'm getting at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I need to know how like light works and stuff. <laughs> it feels pretty break down in this particle part of the by particle. Yeah, yeah, but I think especially the ending when like there's that whole conversation between the godling and the person whose name I have for Kataspala, maybe. Katasbala. No, yeah. it was that. Yeah, or that ditch. whole conversation was. Or yeah, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Ditch actually. That whole conversation was insane. But also like. I was busy that week and I was reading like six hours before the podcast or whatever. So I really want to go back and reread all that. Mm -hmm. It was so interesting. Um, I mentioned AP. I feel like my uh, every time I've reread the book, the Namander stuff has really hit differently and kind of grown Mm -hmm. differently. So it's been very interesting to revisit that. And I look forward to rereading it next time, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a I think it was AP. Maybe somebody did a. I'm now pro Namander. I'm a Namander stand now. Just yeah, getting well, it out. Just getting it out there. The the Namander story is Anamander's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think AP talks about that structurally, yeah. and that's very much the case. And yet, interestingly, it was this novel that opened, kicked open the doors on the whole Carcanus trilogy. That's that's. Um, I, I, was, I had a question written down about that, which is, yeah. uh, I know my understanding is that at this point, writing this book, you were aware that you were going to write the Carcanus books, and I wonder how that impacted. No, no, I became aware. You became, I became aware. aware. I see. How, well, how did that impact mm. how you were approaching it? Was there stuff you knew you wanted to lay the groundwork for, or stuff you specifically didn't want to put in the book? You know. No, I mean. The scenes I did, the, there are flashbacks, aren't there? Yeah, there's a few. Flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, and just the land. Yeah. Um, those scenes are for Toll the Hounds. They have their purpose there. The real linkage between the Namanda story, or actually the Black Coral story, and, and the Darujasan story, is found in the board game that um, they are playing. Uh, in mm-hmm. Black Kreb to Far, I believe. Keftanar. All right, I was close. Kef, yeah, Keftanar. <laughs> Um, and it, it's basically saying that we're looking at this board game being played out in Black Coral uh, on on this, you know, on a table on a, in a tavern. But what Krupp is doing is he's playing the game out in the entire city of Darujistan. And all the new players, all the new pieces coming onto the board. And this is why it's Krupp's story, even though Krupp wasn't there for Black Coral. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to be there for Black Coral because that may never have happened in Black Coral, but it happens in the story because Krupp needs it to happen in order mm-hmm. to make sense structurally of what he is doing in the convergence in Darujistan. So there's all that kind of stuff playing out. Um, but what I found was when I did the flashbacks, the setting of Carcanus just came alive in my mind and my imagination that I, ha- I really have to go back here. Um, this stuff's too interesting uh, to leave alone. <laughs> and so it was in the process of writing uh, those scenes that created the gestation for, for the Carcanus trilogy. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I had no intentions of reading any of the other series within within <laughs> Malazan. But as I was reading through these end of salon scenes, I mean, there was a lot of stuff I say on the podcast of like, I'm just like, they kind of like glaze over and don't really fully understand what's going on. But I have to say it coming out at the end of the book. I'm like, man, I just want to read more about 
Carcanus. Uh, so good job. If, you, if, only, if only, if only there was a You've place. successfully marketed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do people like uh, Hood's arrival? Fucking ten out of ten. So good. <laughs> it was pretty sick. We we've talked a lot about absolute sheer comedy gold of Kid going. I've reconsidered oh, yes. or whatever that line is. So good. Yeah. I was surprised in our Discord there was a lot of discussion about what people thought that line specifically meant. That's where the com- yeah. Uh, that's where and the I had read was. it as a joke, like completely of yeah. him being like, oh, maybe not. But there were a lot of people in our in our Discord um, and I assume elsewhere online who were like really digging into that line. Well, they're, they're certainly welcome to. Uh, I'm not going to yeah. give any answers. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's much more fun right. to have it just sort of sit there uh, Yeah, as yeah. a half sentence. I, w- I was very happy you let, um, what's his name, who had to fight Kalor. Oh, Spinocturov. I'm really happy you let him live. That's not really your brand typically, but it was a nice moment. You did then slaughter Corlat's brother pretty ruthlessly, but, you know, it happens. <laughs> mm. <laughs> happens. Yeah, life for a life there. Well, I, I need a I need a Calor sitting in that in that bar outside the city um, for that final mm-hmm. scene uh, yeah. with him. I also really impressed you made me almost not hate him with every fiber of my being. Good. I still hate him, but now I'm more conflicted about it, which is <laughs> I which is shocking to me because I've hated him for five straight books. Right. So you hate him with only a few fibers of your being. <laughs> Exi- <laughs> still most of most, them yeah <laughs> yeah but there's a few that are unsure now <laughs> uh steve you'd said you had uh you had watched you started watching the the sandman adaptation mm. anything else that you've been watching lately with the, the the media the media consumption list it's one of the it's one of the things I, i'm in in a sort of high level writing mode at the moment Ooh, so, um, really churning it out yeah it's really it, it's all it's all coming out so that tends to sort of leave me with limited faculties sure. to to engage in something i'm trying to so i'm just trying to think right now what i was watching um sure. i thought I, I remember seeing irresistible on uh netflix mm. that was uh, i think john stewart wrote and directed that sure. one. it was a lot of fun mm. yeah it's interesting um did you watch stranger things yeah i did yeah. there you go Actually, uh, I'm going to bring us back really quick. Sorry, AJ, this is going to be... Uh, no, that's fine. Hey. India bringing us back. <laughs> India wants to talk about the book. Let's go. Yeah, okay. Well, now you're setting us up for something exciting that's really... It's not at all. It's about how much I hate uh, Cotillion and Shadow Thrones conversations. <laughs> and I, for the life of me, can never understand what they're talking about. Uh, you don't have to. Um, their conversations... Yeah. Are, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're actually more relevant uh, for the end of the book. And the entire overarching um, storyline, um, although they are discussing Traveler, aren't they, uh, in a fairly I think oblique fashion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they're actually yeah. part. They they are part of this particular conspiracy, but it's only uh, one phase in their in their in their grand scheme. So they would tell you, anyways. Yeah, it's before you ask, like, what are people's like? What are our favorites mm. and least favorites, and every part of them was my least favorite and i know <laughs> that one day it'll pay off but i'm not going to remember what it's paying off about so maybe i'll have to do a reread however uh, mm-hmm. I, would, I wouldn't i wouldn't sweat it i mean they are they're unreliable both of them highly mm-hmm. highly unreliable i would say i would say absolutely they're, 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 they're very talented on taking credit for random events but sometimes yeah, they're not true. so random Aj, did you have any favorite moment you want to share uh, I really just think the the 
the fight between Animander Rake and I was just uh, gonna say that was Traveler my favorite part. Was, it, it, wild. Um, I, I we I know we we opened up questions for our mailbag, and I know somebody has already asked. Like, there's a lot of great one-on-one duels in this book. Um, so preemptively answering that question, uh, it's the the Animander Rake Traveler fight is just amazing, and then really you know, uh, really really sad. Um, that was a twenty D rule fight. No, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. Everything would have changed if it had gone the other way. <laughs> oh that is God. nuts. Oh, man. Can I wow. ask a question that I, I had something I thought about during this book? We met Tula Shorn. Is it a coincidence that his name is Tula Shorn and is an eater that everyone has kind of forgotten? <laughs> and there's a thing called the Shorning they do to forget people? Is that a coincidence? Yes. <laughs> Damn it. There you go. That kill that kills me. That's so we actually just put out a little episode about kind of tabletopping, tabletop storytelling, and how it interacts with like literary fiction and some other types of adaptation. And I would be curious about how you went about taking about something that was informed by chance, like this duel, and kind of bringing it to form in a narrative sense in this novel, and how you that morphs or how that changes or how that informs your approach to the storytelling. Well, I think in this respect, there must have been at least 10 years between that mm. dice roll um, mm. and the event. And so since I, you know, I already knew the ending of the series and I knew, I knew the ending of this book because of that dice roll. So I could structure and build everything in the proper direction uh, so that it made sense um, within the story, um, mm-hmm. within the world. It, it all made sense. So, but if you were to say you know, role-playing scene that you played out last week and then to try to turn it into, you know, something within a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how well that would work. <laughs> sure. I think you need you need the time. That you needed that year, those years in a way. You need the years. And, and you also need, I think you need the years in order to make the mental transition from gaming into writing fiction. Mm-hmm. You need time and space because they're two very, very different things. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read AP's dissertation on the influence of <laughs> RPGs on on fantasy novels? I have. He was telling us I about have. it today. It sounded interesting. Really? Yeah, it. Is it? I want to get it. So I interesting. Message him about it. Sorry, India. It did sound interesting, mm. but I don't know if I would have ever read that. But interesting idea. Anything else you guys wanted to get at? Mm, Malazan wise. Do you want to go off Malazan? You were the one who roped us back in, just had to get in there. I just had to get in that last that last comment. All right, what do you have knockbook wise? Well, what's been going on? <laughs> what's new? <laughs> what's been going on? Uh, I have been writing. I've been writing and writing. Is this for um, Witness or is this for the Karkana stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, it's no life for sure. For sure. Now, is it work? Does this feel like work to you what when does? you're writing? Well, actually, does this like right now? You're t- this is is this work for like are you what what do you consider downtime? Because like mm. writing, how is that downtime for you? It can't be, or can it? Uh sure. I think I think writing is is definitely downtime, um, especially if you've been doing it long enough that um, the craft elements are are things you don't really have to sweat over. Uh, they'll work themselves out. Um, and so it's downtime in the sense that when I sit down in the cafe to write, everything else disappears. Uh, every, you know, real life domestic situation, every 
everything like, you know, I don't know, accounting, preparing your taxes, it all vanishes. In a sense, it's the closest I can get to what life would be like if I was living in a tribe in the Amazon that I never had contact with the outside world, right? No taxes, uh, no nations, a sense of freedom that is, is simply something we, most of us cannot experience and have not experienced in our lives. Because um, you move into a fictional world and it's yours. And in there, um, you do as you please. And while there may be expectations, reader expectations don't come even close to what the author applies to her or himself. So, but that's that's a challenge that, you know, every writer um, has to accept or they don't write. And sometimes I wonder if, if writer's block is actually that resistance to accepting that challenge. Maybe. That seems difficult. I don't really know. I've never felt that way about literally anything in my life, ever. <laughs> hmm. Have you always been that way? Like with the... With like... Yeah. Yeah. My, my imagination has always been my, my place of refuge, my retreat. Um, Did and, you write and, when you were like in school? Uh, like, did yeah, I write? Like a... No. No, I thought it was... I drew um, and painted. I knew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big into watercolors now. Are you? No, I thought oh. you were. I thought that's what you told us that you were drawing watercolors. watercolors. No, I can't. No. I can't paint. I'm the. I can't do anything with my hands I that like, like makes beautiful visions. Nothing. Yeah. No, I was. You can play music. So I, so I said visions. Mm. You can make music. I cannot draw. Yeah. Or or any art. Well, you can, yeah. but if you're, it, I can you're practice. Not good no, at I, yeah, it. I just, yeah, I I'm bad at it. No, I, you're I just, just bad at it. <laughs> if you apply, if you're attempting to apply realism as your your default mode of a good art, then that's true. <clears throat> sure, uh, you might be bad at that, but you know what? Realism's not all it's cracked up to be. So, mm-hmm. not just artistically, but you know, metaphysically as well. Mm. Um, <laughs> little, little realism slander <laughs> on the pod reality. today. Um, <laughs> Josh, I love your art. You're a beautiful artist, and you should adore it. You know, <laughs> thank you. I think I have. I have one last. I mean, well, I guess it's okay. not. It's, so I had a question about I had a question about killing Anamanda Rake. But if it was decided by dice roll, then it maybe isn't as as brutal as I had assumed it would be to like make that decision for the book. Oh, uh, well, but I think, guess, well, think about it. Um, every time preceding this, when I came to an Anamanda Rake scene in, in book after oh, book, I, already, say you know, this, I know what's coming. Right. 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 And that has an influence on how I shape those scenes. Right. There's just there's no way around it. So I was carrying that inevitability um, mm-hmm. all the way leading That's up. So... And it really comes to the fore in in Toll the Hounds, the scenes yeah. in Carcanus that precede what's coming. Also, AJ, AJ that makes it like the, you said, like, you know, the fact that it was set by dice when we make it easier. That makes it harder. Every time one of my characters dies on it, like just, you know. Cause that's what the day the dice like faded. Well, fucking yeah. kills me. No, yeah, but I was just I, I I was talking more in terms of the book. Like you know, there wasn't a moment where he decided like, oh, now Andamanda Rake dies. It was like like he just said from from moment one, mm-hmm. Andamanda yeah. Rake is going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, that's but, tough. But what was that? What was that like in the game? Was that just like a fight you were doing, or was it like is there too much to get into? In terms uh, of- it was. Um, it was the circumstances of the campaign that led traveler to face off with rake and um we had the choice at that point of having them brush each other off and uh, or uh, one of them back down or one of them just say you know that this is not worth it um we had all those opportunities and we could have played that out you know mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. Rake just said, no, I'm not interested in fighting you. Or Traveler would have said, no, I'm not interested in fighting you. Done. Job done. Yeah. It would have, I mean, we probably had previous scenes of that with other characters all the time in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, meetings of Rake, say, with um, Osirk, for example. Mm-hmm. And I had good reason, yeah. you know, as a character, as a role player, or rather as the character of Animander, I had great reasons to kill Osirk at every opportunity. And I never did. Yeah. Lady Envy had great opportunities to kill Rake, and she didn't. So it could have gone that way, but the circumstances were such that we just looked at each other and said, all right, let's do this. Yeah. And um, started rolling Oof. the dice. Yeah. Oof. And yeah, of course, it's, it's, it wasn't as much upsetting when he, when he lost the dice or when he died, because then Cam, Cam had to describe how that played out. Right. And... And what shocked me was that he had it planned. So in other words, he knew that it, it was not going to just be Traveler running his sword through through Rake. That it was going to be Dragnaper that was going to take Rake. Cam mm. had that. I mean, he's devious, right? <laughs> so he had that opportunity planned out. And oh, and that that was the great thing about the gaming is that we always had that ability to really surprise each other. And we carried that into the books, the idea that mm. we want to surprise the reader. We don't want to. We don't want this to be predictable. We don't want you to know where it's going. We want to surprise you, because that's what we love the most in the gaming. So, we went and did that, and yeah, I was completely initially, you know, shocked, upset at losing the character, but then massively intrigued, right? Yeah. Because yeah. he was going into the mm-hmm. sword. This is like <laughs> that never happened. Um, yeah, I knew nothing about what was inside the sword because that was all of Cam stuff. I, you know, there was never an instance wow. where Ganos Paran got in there or Absalar was in there or Dat or um, Draconis. We never, we never played any of that stuff. So I knew nothing of what was in the sword. I had, oh my god, I could, <laughs> That's I, I could so interesting. God, I could hear the wagon. I would, he would tell me, "You hear this wagon? These huge creaking <laughs> wheels and these rattle of chains." And that's all I knew. All I knew. So cool. Wow. Yeah, it was a great moment because it was like, oh, great. This is where are we going with this? And then <laughs> I appeared, you know, in the sword, um, chained. I get to meet Draconis and various other characters. And then I, I'm faced with the dilemma. Well, how do I get out of these chains? Mm. And that took that took the story, his story, in a very different direction from what's in the books. And maybe we'll get to that at some point because it's it's very much related to fan reaction to various things between Cam and between the books Cam and I were writing. It's mm. very very closely related to that, uh, to leading up to a very heavy meeting, heavy conversation between Cam and I uh, at ICFA in Florida uh, one year um, that altered the course of, of certain events in the books. So. Yeah um yeah it was it was absolutely fascinating and, mm-hmm. and that that was our source of entertainment was, was these ending up in places you never expected to end up as characters yeah. and then yeah. running with it well thank you so much for coming on the show today steve and sharing your feelings and your thoughts um as always it's greatly appreciated if you have any thoughts um you can always write in at 10 very big books at gmail.com or we have we're on twitter um as always steve thank you for coming on the show uh thank you josh aj india and um next week we'll be starting dust of dreams 
Woo! Wow. Are you are you going to have a conversation at the end of Dusk of Dreams, or are you going to run straight into the Crypt of we'll, Dawn? We'll, we'll, we'll tell you this. You've asked a big question. We are not <laughs> planning on having a conversation at the end of Dusk of Dreams. I suspect the next Good. time we'll talk will be after we are finished the next series. July. Which <laughs> no, I think I, I think that's that's a good yeah, choice. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's generally idea. how we're going to approach these new books. So um, we'll we'll talk more about that next season. So yeah, thanks again, everybody. I hope you have a great day.